0: and on Instagram and Twitter at BurnedByBooks. Let's start the show. In Andrew Ridker's newest novel, Hope, all is not well in the Greenspan family. Scott, a prominent doctor in Brookline, Massachusetts, has lost his job and medical license after some shady dealings with a clinical trial. His wife, Deb, spends most nights with her other partner, Joan, a charter school zealot, a feature of Scott and Deb's recently opened marriage. Their children, Maya and Gideon, have their own growing pains, with Maya uncertain in her burgeoning career in publishing, having cast off her long-term boyfriend for the promise of something more exciting. Gideon, a bright and talented pre-med student at Columbia, is struck by the seeming purposelessness of his privilege and education. He will soon decamp abroad in a search for more immediate meaningfulness. Set in the Obama years, with the Syrian civil war raging as a distant backdrop, hope shines a spotlight on one family's series of existential trials. In their worst moments, they are reflective of the most human of traits, Desire for something other than one's narrow reality. That desire maps out onto other partners, other geographies, New York City to Berlin to Israel to Gaza to Syria, other professions, and most importantly, other ways of being in the world. Acts of selfishness and kindness mark the Greenspan family struggles, and with each turn of the narrative spotlight, spending time with one family member after another there is the recognition that a good life does not always take a recognizable form or follow a well-trodden path. Eschewing easy answers and stereotypes of the, uh, of the happy, privileged life, Andrew Ridker's Hope carves space for itself in the long history of the family novel. Written in compelling, propulsive prose, Hope makes you feel part of that family. Andrew's debut novel, The Altruists, was published by Viking in the United States and in 17 other countries. The Altruists was a New York Times editor's choice, a Paris Review staff pick, an Amazon editor's pick, and the People Book of the Week. Andrew is the editor of Private Policy, the anthology of surveillance poetics, and his writing has appeared in The New York Times, Esquire, Le Monde, Book Forum, The Paris Review, Guernica, Boston Review, and elsewhere. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, Andrew lives in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome to the show, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Hope is just really a fantastic novel, but I have to start with this really amazing cover photo. <laughs> it is, as I as far as I can tell, a, a bar mitzvah photo from the early 1990s. And I, there's nicely on the back flap, there is a sort of build out of the full photo, um, which I think is a, a truly amazing capturing of the early 90s. But I I wonder what drew you to it, whether you had a choice in it as as your cover and, and what it
1: might say about the novel. Absolutely. Yeah. The cover was, without being able to take credit for the photograph itself, which is by uh, Melissa Ann Pinney, who is a fantastic uh, photographer. Uh, The cover was kind of my uh, idea from the beginning. I was looking around the internet for images uh, kind of that could be good for the cover or just to inspire a cover designer. I have two very close friends, um, uh, Oliver Munday and Peter Peter Mendelsohn, who are very prominent book cover designers. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about what books look like and how to strike that balance between something that's compelling and original. But not so alienating that that you know potential readers might might gaze past it, and mm. I came across that image. I forget how exactly, but yeah, it's from a uh, bach mitzvah in 1991 at, at the Sh- uh, Knickerbocker Hotel in Chicago, and it features this kind of classic, you know, image of a of a of a boy. Dancing with a girl who is much taller than him, but they are presumably the same age. His you know, his head comes up to about her chest. And they're staring out at the camera with this look of incredible adult seriousness and sadness and wisdom uh, on this day that's supposed to be about, you know, a partying to celebrate this, you know, sort of coming of age moment. and as, as soon as I saw it, you know, I knew, whatever this book is, whatever the tone is, it is captured by this photograph. It's funny. It's sad. It's, a, it's realistic, but almost hyper-realistic. There's something about it that feels yeah, yeah, exaggerated. Um, and so, yeah, I, there, the book isn't set in the nineties and there's no bar mitzvah scene in the book, but there is something about that image that connotes, you know, humor, sadness, Jewishness, Americanness, I just felt like, even though it's not a literal uh, transposition of the book, if you if you are you know drawn to that image, you will be hopefully drawn to the, <laughs> of the book. Well, I went to quite a number of uh,
0: bar mitzvahs in the nineteen nineties, and boy, does it feel, boy, does it resonate with me. Um, and it did with the book, indeed. As as you say, it's not in the 90s, but there's something about that, like, 90s era overhang that feels like it's in the lives of the Greenspans, which
1: I... Absolutely. And there was a, you know, it's been funny to talk to, you know, people who are, who are Jewish or grew up with a lot of Jewish people, you know, recognize it immediately as a bar by mitzvah photo. But I have a friend uh, from Princeton, New Jersey with a Hyphenated old kind of American name who, who said it reminded him exactly of his cotillion uh, dance mm. you know, classes, and so I think there's something oh, funny that too. That's it's both culturally specific, but also has that universality. We all know what it's like to be to be 13, and either the girl who's too tall for the boy, or the boy who's too short for the girl, and just feeling that 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 sense of wanting to be grown up, and and being in a rush to be grown up, even though you don't quite know what that. Might entail. Mm, wow. And, and that leads me
0: to a, a question about feeling grown up. Because I, while Maya and Gideon certainly look to their parents to be grown ups, it, it strikes me that Scott and Deb don't feel very comfortable in in their place, or at least in the form they've found of being grown up, and that some of the things that happen to them have to do with not. You know, Scott isn't very comfortable having to take care of his cantankerous mother and doesn't quite know what that relationship looks like. And Deb, who sort of finds herself married, but with perhaps other interests, same sex desires, uh, it doesn't really recognize herself as a grown up. So I wonder if that um, was was on your mind, the way in which we can reach adulthood and
1: not really feel like we're adults. Absolutely. I. I was writing this book, I guess around the time I was sort of moving from my twenties to my thirties, and it's and realizing, you know, at some point here I am a grown up, and but I feel like a kid, and and that combined with the fact that you know I was writing it, much of it during uh, COVID, and in this kind of that lockdown period, and that was a time. Not you know, you had COVID, you had uh Trump, you had the racial justice protest. There was this real feeling of where are the adults in the room? And mm-hmm. I think all of that sort of combined to make me feel like, well, maybe I'll never quite feel like a grown-up, and maybe the other grown-ups around me share that. Uh I, you know, that scene you this or the dynamic you reference between Scott, uh, uh, the father of the family and his mother. You know, I think you spend five minutes with your parents and you you revert to being that kid again, <laughs> that authority can be taken away so fast. And so, yeah, I think that's a really big theme of the book. And especially in Maya's section, she she has this uh, affair with uh, the man who had been her sort of substitute English teacher when she was in high school. And there's a lot of uh, recurring motifs in her section in particular about age and who's an adult and who's a child and, you know can you tell how old someone is by looking at their hands, you know, these little jokes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and observations, because yeah, I think that, I think when you're, you know, about 30 or so standing on that precipice, I don't know, there's nothing more terrifying to me in some ways than realizing that, you know, there are no, there are no necessarily adults in the room, just grown up kids. It reminded Mm -hmm. me of, uh, my, my kindergarten teacher who, who was a family friend, uh, When she was, she once talking to my mom once and brought her into the classroom to see, see all the kids and said, look around this room and it's, you're going to realize all of these people are going to be in charge one day. And, you know, this kid's picking his nose and this kid's block structure. And I think there's something about that that is, you know, pretty profound and, and I'm still grappling with to be sure.
0: Mm. And I'm a good bit older than you are, and I'm still grappling with it. So maybe it's just we spend our lives grappling with it. So I hope gets referenced by a couple of reviewers as Jonathan Friends and like, which I think is a reference to it. Having some of the some of the recognizable aspects of what might be called an old fashioned novel, mm. by which I mean novels as they they were at their beginning and for quite a long time until rather recently, and you've got a third person narrator who has omniscient qualities that follows the members of the family. There's a chronology. There's a, a, a clearly fictional plot, but one that hews to physical and and metaphysical reality. I I wonder if you think that this is a kind of novel that has fallen out of fashion, um, but yet is one that we're incredibly drawn to. To. Whenever I find one of these, I think, "Oh, I love this kind of novel," and then I think, "Oh, there aren't as many of them, certainly as there there were in the age of now autofiction and and other new styles and subgenres." So I wonder what you think of it and how you think of hope in that context.
1: Yeah, um, I'm. I too am such a sucker for that sort. The sort of pleasures of the conventional novel and the. The, you know, just character, the storylines that you can get sucked into characters you can emotionally invest in these things to me are not, they, they feel, I I agree in some ways old fashioned or conservative or something because of where, you know, trends are headed. But I, I feel like the novels that endure or many of the novels that have endured in sort of my life on my, as a reader, um, are the ones that, that take those, those, traditions seriously and and that i don't i don't personally feel like engaging with those traditions is inherently uh you know retrograde or or, mm. or backwards looking i oh, definitely not and yeah and and you know there's something i remember when my when my first book when the manuscript for the altruists was sold um it felt like it was that the autofiction hadn't quite peaked culturally. And then between the time that the manuscript was sold and the book came out, it really took off. And I remember feeling a little out of step during those times. I love a number of works of autofiction. I love a lot of those authors. It's just sort of not what I, to be honest, am am capable of doing. I think a lot of times we writers come up with elaborate theoretical uh, arguments for why we pursue the kind of art we pursue. But part of it too is is not even a choice I think mm-hmm. I wouldn't write a very good auto fictional novel I don't find my own life on it you know on its own uh interesting enough to sort of get me going creatively but if I can distance myself with that's with that omniscience with that third person roving voice um you know anything that gets you sitting down in the morning to write is kind of what you have to do um but yeah I I agree I love those kind of books and I've always had a sort of I like people who, who play within the bounds of tradition as well. Like, uh, in some ways, you know, you could argue, and I've had, I've had this argument with friends that one reason the novel has persisted when certain other forms have sort of, uh, fallen by the wayside, you know, you can see like in poetry, the logical extension of free verse poetry could be, you know, really sort of extreme formlessness The logical extension of abstract painting could be, you know, the sort of blank canvas or the all black canvas or what have you, you know, classical music can be going to this sort of atonal experimental register. And there's something old fashioned about novels in general that, you know, we're still writing in this Jane Austen, you know, Gustave Flaubert kind of mode. And I don't know, there's something uh, comforting to me in the thought that though people experiment and those experiments are necessary and interesting, we'll always have novels like the you know, like the Russian novels and we always will and, and they're not going to sort of fall apart into total formlessness. I I wonder sometimes mm-hmm. if that's a novel is has survived, is it's got some of those just core features. Yeah, I think that's right.
0: The catalyst to the precipitous decline of the greenspans is Scott's unethical profiting from a clinical trial. His misdeeds are not so much the root cause for that decline, but rather they shine a light on weaknesses and fault lines in each family member's life, allowing for these cracks and fissures to intensify. Scott's choice to built the system comes, in fact, from a desire to care for his mother, casting a rather gray hue over the morality question. I wonder why you wanted to start with Scott's transgression and have that be the catalyst and whether that was always the choice for you within this particular novel or whether that's something that evolved as a a useful catalyst later on.
1: Yeah, I really like that word catalyst because I think, as you say, the problem's that this family faces are you know years in the making and very deep and very you know ever present, but often we live with things that you know until until they reach a breaking point we kind of tolerate or or look away from so I always knew at least when the novel had found its its general form that Scott's uh, misdeeds at work would would be the catalyst, and I think it's yeah, there's a funny way in which it's In some ways, the most superficial uh, problem this family faces, it's the most sort of the one that has the most direct real life consequence where he loses his job Mm. briefly and his wife leaves him briefly and all these things happen. But I think the real richer material in some ways are those longer standing parent, children, marital relationship currents. So I always knew that, um, yeah, that his, his issue would sort of set everything off, but hope Fully, you know set it off into in some ways more interesting uh directions where it wouldn't be simply a story of you know crime and punishment but what what a sort of crime can illuminate about what's always been there which i think the best mm-hmm. crime stories always have you know the someone does something it prompts the the town or the community to to look at itself and usually when it looks at itself it starts finding these other things um beyond that initial incident so i uh Yeah, I I always wanted to follow that way. And I will say that when I started writing the book, I had not much experience in crime fiction whatsoever. Not that that's what the novel is, but, you know, it has a sort of a crime of sorts, a very upper middle class uh, type of crime. But it's well, and the scene,
0: the scene with the investigator feels very much like it could be in a in a a crime
1: novel. Exactly. So I became a complete obsessive uh, fan of Patricia Highsmith. In the Mm. course of writing the novel, (laughs) and I was actually—I think I'd probably sold the book by this point and had done a round of edits on it. And I had just read, you know, fifteen Highsmith novels, and I thought I really want to write an interrogation scene. And I sort of studied and outlined all these different scenes she has from, you know, Strangers on a Train, and and tried to figure out, you know, what can I can I import some of that? And it was so fun to write, and I would not have had the confidence, or maybe even idea to write it. I think in an initial draft, you know, it was like a once, you know, Scott was deposed and then this happened. And I thought, well, that can be a scene. And then it turned out to be one of the most fun scenes to write. So sometimes too, you can see influences come in late in the game, you know, not even, not even someone that I'd been reading very long. But that's that's fascinating because that scene really lingers for me because mm-hmm. it's
0: and and I and now that you say the Highsmith I, I I sort of see the how that's working behind the scenes there because what the investigator does is basically lay out in without any kind of drama. Well, this is how what you probably did, and I'm so used to seeing how criminal behavior arises from what people think of as either uh, not a a big decision or a small thing that won't affect anyone else, and therefore it's not really a crime, and just how I would feel if someone was saying that to me, this sort of rise in blood pressure and rise of being seen um, in a way that you thought you were hidden.
1: Yeah, that scene really ended up prompting, you know a, a candidate for the sort of, uh, or at least, yeah, a candidate for sort of, where is this book's moral center in that speech that that investigator gives where he's exactly saying, you know, I've, he's, I think he says something like I've dealt with some genuinely bad people. Uh, but most of the time the people I deal with just, you know, were cutting corners. And that was for me in some ways, again, late in the game, but a way to sort of, Try out a a thesis statement of sorts, wh- to, which is to say, not to, for instance, uh, uh, pretend that all evil in the world is like cutting corners or innocent mistakes. There, you know, there is this acknowledgement of there there are real, like, sort of chaos agents out there, but that many, that, but that often, these kinds of cutting corners or misunderstandings. Are, are what, at least what I'm most interested in exploring. And uh, yeah, it became a kind of statement in the novel. Uh, although, again, it's what I, the sort of protection I feel in getting to write in the third person is I can ha- have this investigator lay out this big moral case and I don't, the author don't to- completely have to commit to it. I can sort of leave it open, but it's a way for me to try out, like, maybe this is what I think. Let's see what this character says and have him run, run with it. Oh, absolutely, that's so fascinating. I
0: love that it came upon upon you later in the in the process. That's great. So th- this is a novel that does move quite globally: New York City to Berlin to Israel to Gaza to Syria. But in many ways, these geographic wanderings reflect black back in one way or another on the home of the Greenspans, Brookline, Massachusetts. Brookline doesn't star in a lot of novels. It's kind of Boston's little sister, and in many ways, it's a place of local knowledge more than national knowledge. It's notable for its wealth, its incredible public schools, and its large Jewish population. Why was Brookline the right place for hope?
1: So I'm from Brookline, and I was writing much of the book in Brookline, uh, when I when COVID hit and I I left New York um and sort of, you know, sheltered in place in my childhood home, which, you know, naturally brought up a lot of memories of growing up there. And Brookline is, as you say, this kind of place where, at least in my experience, you know, you grow up somewhere and you kind of take it for granted. You assume every childhood is sort of like your own. And when you get older and you start to meet people and share stories and realize what's unique and interesting about where you're from. And I think that's true for every place. But in the case of Brookline, I think as a teenager, I was like, this is, you know, a sort of safe suburb kind of milk toast, not very interesting place. Uh, and then as I got older and started talking to people and sharing stories, realizing it's a really weird and specific place. It's a, it's a place where, uh, as you say, there it's, there's money, there's an intense focus on education, but there's also a really, really strong, uh, I'd say center left to left, uh, sort of political, um, foundation that is almost, I mean, you could call it a bubble. It's sort of like everybody who lives there is very much committed to social justice somewhere left of, of center. And that dynamic interacts with the class dynamic in a very interesting way, where I basically feel sometimes like I grew up in a town of extremely well-meaning, well-intentioned, social justice-oriented people who at times their class or race block them from seeing some of the very obvious missteps they were making. And there's a lot of comedy certainly that can come out of that. Uh, So for me, though, thinking about the Obama era as well, I don't think any town represented Obama's values and ideals more than Brookline. And I remember- um, Fascinating. You know, it was such a, it was an incredible feeling at the time. Like, it was like, we, there was a feeling of like, we elected this guy. Like, he stands for what we stand for. And so looking back with some, you know, some more gimlet-eyed perspective to see what some of the failings of his administration were and also what, you know, where it took us from there, it felt like a way to say, you know, the quintessential Obama-era town, a quintessentially Brookline family. This is a way to speak to some of those broader global and, of course, national issues uh, without being too direct and, and heavy-handed. One one book I was thinking a lot about at the time was Revolutionary Road, mm-hmm. uh, where you mm-hmm. know this couple, in some ways, they stand in for like the conformity of the '50s, but it's never so in your face and on the nose that it. it they lose their specificity and become purely a metaphor. And so for me, writing the book was all about, I want these characters to represent Obama era Brookline values, but I want them to be human beings that do more than just, you know, symbolize or or, or connote something.
0: One of the great pleasures of reading about place and hope for me was, uh, I, I lived for a while in both Cambridge and Boston and there's so many little nuggets of uh, local specificity from the Middle East in Cambridge to New England Mobile Book Fair, may it rest in peace, right. and, uh, and to Mayor Menino, the the mayor, the least comprehensible mayor of the <laughs> uh, the late twentieth uh, century. So I wonder how you chose um, what would come into the the novel because it really has a tremendous amount of local flavor in it, and you picked very vibrant, resonant places. And I wonder how that um, those got chosen.
1: Yeah, well, it's you know I think in some ways a lot of novel writing, at least in, in working in a somewhat realistic mode, is about choosing. Is about choosing details. And that's true of characters and places. And and in some ways, you know, when you read something that is both realistic uh and grounded in, in real life, but also has a sort of particular voice or or perspective, what that is is really just that author having, you know, looked at a, a crowd of a hundred people and picked out the three that, you know, suit their sort of vision of things. And it's not that those other people weren't there, but it's also not that they made those three people up out of nothing. And so for me, a lot of it is okay. I can say it's set in Boston or Brookline, but what are the things about Brookline that feel Brookline to me? And those things end up being, like you said, detail. You know, details having to do with schools, details having to do with the bookstores, um, the synagogues. Uh, you know, the synagogue I grew up going to, which was sort of the model for the synagogue in the book, is a very particular building with very particular architecture and and you know I think a lot of it's just it's about I guess knowing your own sensibility, sort of thinking okay this there's a million things in brookline that signify brookline but what what is brookline to me and those things got to come out uh, in the case of the new england mobile book fair um which for your listeners is this you know or was this giant warehouse of a bookstore where books were organized by publisher and kind of haphazardly in boxes. And mm-hmm. was it? it was a, it's just a place, you know, my mom took me as a kid and a strange place like that kind of leaves an impression on you. And again, sometimes it takes talking to other people who, who might not have had that particular upbringing to go. That That was kind of a weird, interesting place that, you know, I might not have thought of as unusual, but now that I realize not everyone had a New England mobile book fair. I mm-hmm. can see what's what's odd about it. Um, so yeah, a lot of it's just about boiling down those things. And uh, you know, there's a way to paint Brookline as a very. Uh, I think there's a way to paint Brookline as a pretty bland, straightforward suburb. I think there's a way to paint Brookline as a very Jewish place. It's a very academic place. It's sort of what's the slant, and and for me, those are the things that really call up uh, Brookline. But I but I will say. I would not have written about Brookline six or seven years ago. I think even then I was not removed from it enough to mm. see what was particular and interesting about it it took it took you know I'm trying to think at least a decade of living away um and, and then coming back and then coming back absolutely, yeah.
0: So the dissolution of the Greenspan marriage in the form of intimate and economic betrayals is particularly painful for Scott and Deb's son, Gideon, who had idolized his father and followed a path um, towards a similar career in, in medicine. It's clear that the novel sees Deb and Scott's marriage, however, fraught as a source of meaningful stability for their children. But Deb and Scott each grapple with the contradictions of their, their desires and self-interests and the confines of marriage as they recognize it. I wonder how you wanted to play with the notion of self-interest and desire and whether or not marriage can ever be suitable to those things.
1: Yeah, I I am very drawn in writing to those tensions of loyalty and sort of group or community belonging against sort of these personal, you know, uh, independent desires. Cause I think those things are always in tension. I, I was talking with some friends recently about this question, you know, is the, is a fam- is there something sort of inherently conservative about the family novel as a form in that, mm-hmm. um, in the, in the sort of English, uh, British tradition, um, many of those novels, sort of, you know, end with the family intact or a sense of sort of a new generation taking the the reins. Whereas I was sort of interested, I found it interesting to learn recently that in the sort of Russian family novel tradition, because of the way that the laws and economics around family worked in that country at the time, you get many more... For instance, you can think of Dostoevsky. You get like novels that are more horizontal in terms of like their siblings and it's spread out versus the multi-generation sort of American or British uh, mode. And all of this is just to say that I do think there's a real tension there between, um, you know, the family can be a a a site of of you know restriction and it can be stifling and it can it can really hold you back. And then there's another sense where I, I can see family in a very lefty kind of light as a site of, you know, mutual dependence. And, you know, this sense of, you know, we can't actually make it just on our own, by our own bootstraps. We do need each other. Mm. So I'm always thinking about those tensions, you know, is it is it a liberatory thing? Is it a restrictive thing? Um, and we
0: see that then echoed in Maya's choices in really interesting ways.
1: Yeah, she, you know, there's so much too about our parents often giving us advice that may also be correct, but still needs to be freely chosen by the child and a sense of you need to sort of fail on your own. You know, Maya's, Maya's sort of relationship in high school with this teacher is sabotaged by her mother who wants to protect her, but in doing so, the mother Deb, also hurts her. And there's all these, and in some ways because Deb has intervened, uh, Maya, it's sort of this unfulfilled thing, this mistake that was never actually made. So Maya has to sort of make it all over again as an adult. Um, So I was thinking a lot about that too. Like, what are the ways that our parents can, or we as parents can steer our children away from catastrophe? And what are the ways that catastrophe just has to be experienced firsthand for it to really, uh, you know, to be learned in that in that
0: deeper way oh that's so interesting because i i hadn't quite you know placed it in in that way until you said it now that it really is her replicating her opportunity to do something disastrous right right. and then get to feel the full consequences of it and that parents in their in their rush but also good you know clarity of things to, to protect, to keep their children from, from having to experience the pain of those things sometimes can, can do more damage than they imagine.
1: Right. And it's, you know, I'm like, I wouldn't do anything differently. Uh, If I, if I found out my daughter (laughs) was having these weird dates with this teacher, but then, you know, yeah, exactly. And yeah. So, so just thinking about, yeah, I think that independence, I, 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 mean, I come from a very tight knit family and we're all very loving and close, but the the flip side of that is, you know, if you want to be somebody that your family doesn't think you are, or if you want to explore something that might be new to you, you're reckoning, not just with your own identity, but with the perception of you that's held by these people who in some ways know you better than yourself and in some ways really don't. And that tension has always felt very rich to me.
0: So to to think about Deb for a second, who's such an interesting character, her late in life acting on what was, um, you know, her whole life, same-sex desire, is kind of largely a disappointment. You know, her interaction with that famous poet who loses interest in her quickly, and then her longer-term relationship with Joan, the great crusader for charter school choice— is poisoned by Joan's rather bad politics and self-centeredness. Maya's crush on her high school English teacher reveals its disastrous implications, and Gideon casts off his seemingly close and devoted college girlfriend in favor of something like a cause. Most of the intimate partnerships in the novel fail to satisfy the characters in some way or another— is is the hope of the of the novel in some ways trying to find a a true partner and needing to constantly reorient to understand what that hopefulness really means.
1: I really like that reading. Um, I I think you're dead on that. You know the there are not there are quite a few let's say unhappy relationships uh, in this novel and I and I it's funny I I tend to. In some ways, I, if I were to do a little armchair analysis of myself, mm-hmm. I find I, I tend to write uh, situations that are sort of my worst nightmare, or situations that I could not endure for a minute in real life. I, I wouldn't last a second in any of my novels. Uh, I, I have a real <laughs> need for, you know, things to be orderly and and calm. I'm um, I very happily married in a in a relationship that fortunately does not bear many, you know. Comparisons to any of the relationships in the novel. But I think the fear of all of that, you know, the 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 rug being pulled out from under you, the the fear of the relationship crumbling or the fear of a life spitting out of control, um, is is so powerful for me that I find myself writing these scenarios that I think if I were to write, you know, to go back, if I were doing auto fiction, I think one of the reasons it would be boring if to me, if not to a reader, was I'd be writing about it basically. Uh, boring, stable, domestic uh, situation—at uh, least boring to the outside. But you know, when it comes to writing, I find myself drawn to these more extreme scenarios. Uh, to your question, though, about these relationships, I think I do believe in the possibility of of finding these kind of partnerships or or sibling relationships or whatever that that do provide such important grounding. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't want to, you know, these books to be read in a in a in a way that would suggest that you know all all family or romantic relationships are doomed. But at the same time, I do think a successful partnership or friendship or family relationship depends so much on the compromise and and you know sort of managing of your own impulses and desires. That it's fun to play with characters that have a harder time with that and to see those sort of uh, power dynamics be negotiated in in real time. So I'm Mm -hmm. really drawn to, you know, who has the power in this conversation? Is the power shifting? You know, you mentioned that interrogation scene earlier. That's a scene where Scott starts, his, his the deposition, you know, in control? And then slowly it's revealed that the investigator has more ammo than he sort of purported to at the beginning. And I'm just very interested in the way, yeah, those power dynamics shift because they're always with us, even if we don't really want to admit that, you know, with our children or our spouses or our friends, there's a little, there's always a slight imbalance that's informing the the argument one way or another. Mm, absolutely.
0: I finished reading the last section of the novel just as Hamas was conducting its brutal attack against Israel. It was incredibly jarring to have the novel take me to that part of the world discussing the plight of Gaza as Gideon tries to understand his own relationship to Israel, to Jewishness, and to a call to a life of service. It is a moment that recalls the horrors of the Syrian civil war, but it has a new resonance now. How do you view this section of the novel in
1: light of the past week's horrors? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I... I'm definitely still processing and thinking over. Um, It's so recent. It's sort of an unfair question to ask as we're in the
0: midst of it.
1: It is interesting because, I mean, I think when, when I wrote it, it felt, you know, I, I should say for context. So, you know, a big chunk of that, of Gideon's section is set on a birthright trip to Israel, which is a, you know, a very real thing that happens where, you know, uh, Jewish or half Jewish, uh, teenagers basically are sent to have a sort of cultural heritage tour in Israel and i think just about every one of my
0: um jewish faculty colleagues did this
1: yes it's it's extraordinarily popular it's the kind of thing that i was shocked to see hadn't really been written about before in a in, or dramatized in a sort of fictional way i, I you know i think there was a, you know an episode of broad city where they gestured to it um but there's really hadn't been much on it and i thought You know, if Philip Roth were alive today, this is surely what he would be writing about. Oh, (laughs) yeah. You know these because they're and they're funded by big, dark uh, Republican money, and there's all kinds of weird dynamics they don't like to talk about. Palestine on the trip. So for me, it was let's do a sort of, in in a way like a a politically tinged sex farce in in on a birthright trip because, of course, one of the big uh, goals for birthright is to have you make a potential romantic connection with, you know, another Jewish person and presumably make a Jewish baby and maybe move to Israel one day. And there's these there are a lot of um sort of undercurrents to beyond, uh, you know, informing what on the surface looks to be just like, hey, look at this fun free trip. And of course, there's no such thing as a as a free trip. So mm. so I really wanted to explore that. But of course, when I was writing it, um things are always uh, in flux over there, but it was not what we were we what we're seeing this week um it's funny i wouldn't go back and change anything because i think my critiques of israel that are sort of uh you know levied in the book by various characters uh through different mouthpieces stand but um it certainly feels like a diff. Uh, you know it feels like everything's changed and nothing's changed i, I guess um I have, I think having watched this unfold from so far away, um, I've been most, or not most, but I've been just, just stressed mainly by watching it filter through the discourse and seeing how, you know, there are ways in which sometimes it feels like it's a, a soccer game, you know, and people are waving the flags of their teams. And I've read some commentators say this, and I certainly, I feel that this is true. And I certainly hope that this is true. That, you know, the the people of who are suffering are not necessarily represented by their leadership on both sides. And mm. I think we hear mostly from the those leaders and we hear from some very vocal factions, but I really need to believe that people on the ground are not as extreme necessarily in either direction. And all of this is just to say, I think, you know, writing about the Obama era, writing about the Middle East, these things... I could write about them from a bit of a safe distance because they're taking place 10 years ago, but at the same time knowing they're never gonna leave the news cycle, at least in my lifetime it feels. I I felt very much like this is a work of historical fiction in one sense because I have to make sure everything is accurate to the mood and the events and the settings of 2013, 2014, but those, those issues are still with us. So I don't know, in some ways, in a perverse sense, I suppose it's gratifying to see um, these things still be relevant, and in a human sense, it's obviously deeply distressing and, and unnerving. So I, I'm still kind of figuring it out, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean that's that's I guess it's the risk of writing, um, you know, this kind of very current thing, even if it's even if it's ten years past yeah it certainly it gave it um uh, you know
0: moved me from thinking about the obama era to feeling like there was an instant relevance which was which was very interesting if if distressing but i feel like that that ability to to be able to have a novel take on new layers in you know generation after generation is is one of the powers of of the novel but we get to see it here in in the kind of a, immediate fashion rather than having to wait a generation.
1: Yeah. And I'll say too quickly that, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think this is probably true of all historical fiction that, that it, it needs to say something about, or it would make sense if it said something about, you know, the world we're in at the time of the novel's composition, as well as when the novel is set. And it was important to me that the open, oh, people don't look at it exclusively as like, oh, this is a sort of Obama era thing, but that there is this undercurrent of, so what happened between then and now, and all of these things that don't happen in the book, but happened in recent history, like COVID, like Trump, like this situation in Israel, that those would drag the reader from the last page into the present. And so there's a real sense of continuity that I wanted, To be there, obviously not in this way, but you know, I think there's something about writing a almost like a period piece, but also wanting it to to speak to now by not saying all the things you know come come next. Hmm.
0: I so I am very interested in hearing a little bit more about your anthology of surveillance poetics. I happen to teach a class on surveillance literature. I have not looked at your anthology, but I love to hear what your interest is in it and, and how you came to be the editor of that anthology.
1: Yeah. Um, and speaking of the Obama era, it must've been, I believe actually it was the summer of 2013 when so much of this that book is, uh, the that hope is set that I was, um, interning at Boston review magazine. And that was, I want to say there was a lot, Snowden was in the news a lot, uh, mm-hmm. People, someone had just performed a surgery wearing one of those Google Glass uh, glasses. Oh, wow. Didn't end up really taking off, but like for a second seemed, you know, like this might change, you know, this might be the wearable technology that we're all using in 10 years. Well, I remember uh, Gary
0: Steingart uh, had yes. one and was, you know, wearing it for some, some long
1: uh, concentrated period of time. Yes, that's right. I think, yeah, maybe it was like a New Yorker piece or something where he was, yeah, he, there's a, there was just a lot in the air about the NSA and about, but also about corporate surveillance and technology. And I, I began my writing life as a, I guess I should say, aspiring poet. And I was in college at the time having this internship and I proposed to one of the editors, you know, what if we reached out to some poets and asked them to respond uh, in, in poetry about surveillance? Um, and they said, go for it. So I came up with this list of poets and, you know, because there presumably there would only be room for a couple of them in the magazine and I couldn't have known that everyone would have work on this subject. So I emailed a whole bunch of people and a shockingly high percentage of them came back and said, it's funny you should mention I've been working on this poem most recently that's about surveillance. And very quickly, we had too many poems for this feature in this magazine. What was interesting to me at the time was I really don't. I'm very cautious of tackling politics head on in art. I'm very, I like, I get very queasy about this, about pushing too hard once, you know, in one direction or another. I, I feel like in some ways the goals of politics and art can often be just completely opposed to each other. But that project was an interesting experiment to say, how can I create a, an anthology of poems that will survive the moment as poems and also speak to the moment. And the book now, looking back on it, I think a number of those poems have held up because they are, they take surveillance or a certain political issue of the moment as the point of inspiration and stretch it out to be, to make some broader uh, comment on, you know, the human conditions. So it was, that was just, I would just graduate of college when it came out and it felt like a, a really wonderful introduction and just sort of the literary world outside of the classroom. That I'm definitely going to
0: have to take a look at it. I, I am very interested at how so many people working in the literary arts are starting to take up in one way or another, not, not necessarily in a direct political manner, but just to reckon with the fact that we live in an age in which privacy seems to be dwindling down to the sort of smallest slivers of our of our life so i'll be looking forward to to taking a look at that i'm interested before i let you go in what you've been reading and loving recently and what and whether you'd share some recommendations
1: absolutely yeah um well the first book i'd like to recommend i want to say it came out originally maybe in the 80s but it's been published, I just this week or last week in the United States for the first time. It is uh, the Children's Bach, B-A-C-H, like the composer uh, by Helen Barner. She is a remarkable writer. Almost everything she's written is worth getting your hands on. Um, but the Children's Bach in particular, I've seen this everywhere in the yeah. last week or so. I, it's it's a it's, it's almost I guess you could call it a novella. And it's a family story, much like Hope, but she dispenses with a lot of the usual architecture of the family novel. So there's, you know, if some, if your classic uh, multi-generation family novel opens with, you know, the the sort of generational map on the opening, you know, those opening pages where all the characters are are connected on a, a graphic tree, hers is like, she goes the complete opposite direction. It unfolds in these moments and there's an almost stream of consciousness quality to it that gives it a kind of modernist feel but it's so funny and so real and there's a particular character in it named Dexter who is the patriarch who is in love with domesticity and is really threatened by these outside arrangements and so i think in the same way that hope explores like open marriages and these kind of alternative family dynamics so does the children's book in a really remarkable way and it can be read in you know an afternoon. I, I couldn't recommend it more. Oh, I'm gonna get it. It sounds incredible. Yeah, she's she's wonderful. And and Pantheon Books just put out that along with her great uh true crime uh, book, This House of Grief. So she's wonderful. I have been on a really kind of funny Joyce Carol Oates kick uh recently where I hadn't really read much of her before and just found You've her... got a few in your future then. Yes. Well, <laughs> at this point, I mean. I must. I yes. I've read like a dozen, and and have still an incredibly long way to go. Uh, but I've the book that kind of kicked it off for me was this early novel of hers called Wonderland. It's part of the Wonderland Quartet, just as a thematic quartet. But the book itself is also called Wonderland, and it is a crazy, harrowing, bizarre book about a young man who survives like a crazy childhood trauma, goes on to become. Become a doctor. He has these weird mentors. He's adopted by this weird family. It's almost, it's grotesque. It's gothic. It's and it reads really in a like a book that the kind of thing that doesn't seem like it's written anymore, the kind of book when people say, oh, they don't make them like this anymore. It's so idiosyncratic. It's so masterful, but it's just so weird. And uh, if you're into sort of a darker, um, you know basically don't read this if you know if it's not quite a beach read unless you're you know looking for a more kind of nihilistic beach read but it's a dark uh gripping book and it sent me on this crazy this crazy uh <laughs> Joyce Carol Oates uh, hunt which will have to end soon because i'll I have other things to do and she has so many books you 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 will pass
0: away before you can read all of I know all I know. of her works I have n- I've never heard of
1: this one so yeah, it's really- uh, and it yeah, and that sounds great. And then I'll do one more, which is, um, uh, he's a lesser-known writer in the sort of Jewish American canon, but one that means a lot to me. Uh, Leonard Michaels was a fantastic uh, story writer and novelist. Maybe a little younger than the, a bit younger than the Roth Ozick generation, but he wrote he wrote these fantastic stories called the Nachman stories uh, about this mathematician named Nachman who. I, I think there's there's a uh, a British edition of the Nockman stories kind of compiled. You can also get them in his collected stories. But he wrote an, a fantastic novella that I'd like to recommend called The Men's Club, and it's about it's set in Berkeley, California, in I want to say the late '70s. And the premise is basically all of these women have been joining women's groups and feminist groups, and their husbands sort of say, "Why can't we have a group?" And it follows basically one. Meeting of the men's Club. And you know, in this time when when masculinity is such a hot topic, and I feel like that Richard Rhodes book about, you know, sort of issues with boys and men and college admissions and 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 suicide. and all this stuff is very, you know, at the forefront of the culture right now. In some ways, no book, in my view does a better job both uh, dramatizing and lampooning a particular form of masculinity than The Men's Club. I feel like if you're a man, you will read it and wince and laugh with recognition. And if you're not a man, I think it is a great little eavesdrop into uh, what men talk about when they're left to their own devices. It is a self-aware, funny, um, and extremely mature book about uh, some very immature uh, men. So I would recommend The Men's Club as well. Fantastic. Those are
0: three great recommendations. And I want to recommend Hope by Andrew Ridker. It is just a, a fantastic classic novel that will absorb you and make you very pleased for having spent the time with it. Thank you so much, Andrew. This was such a wonderful chance to to get to talk to you about the the book the work, but also just about things in general. Yeah,
1: this was absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
0: Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Andrew Ridker for coming on the show to talk about his newest novel, The Wonderful Hope, now out with Viking. You can find links to purchase Hope and all of Andrew's recommended books at the website, burnbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.